And I'm going to invite you to turn in the Bible to Galatians chapter 2. In fact, I'm going to ask you, request that you find uh, somewhere a copy of Scripture, if you can, uh, to look at. Uh, our whole services are designed to just sort of follow the contours of a, of a biblical text for the most part. So, Galatians chapter 2, and it is page 972 in the House Bible, if you're using that. All right, once you find it, I want to ask you a question to think about. I want to ask you this morning a very carefully worded question. Are you ready? Okay. The question is this. Is obedience to God necessary for salvation? You don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to think about it. Is obedience to God necessary for salvation? And the correct answer is, what do you mean? That's the correct answer. The correct answer is, well, what do you mean by obedience? What do you mean by necessary? What do you mean by salvation? What do you mean by obedience? Are you talking about a, a, a personal obedience? or the obedience of Jesus Christ on your behalf? And if you're talking about personal obedience, are you talking about obedience that flows from a regenerate heart, from faith, by a work of the Spirit? Or are you talking about an unregenerate person's outward conformity or any outward conformity apart from Christ? And if so... Uh, if you're talking about a personal obedience, what do you mean, what amount of obedience are you talking about? What consistency of obedience? And what do you mean by necessary? I mean, necessary as the means of salvation or necessary as an essential aspect of the grace that saves? And what do you mean by salvation? Do you mean being justified before God or being spared from hell at the final judgment of God? All of these terms, all of these words in this question demand careful thought. And as you can see, accurate preaching of the gospel requires the careful articulation of biblical terminology. But in that, we are not left without hope. God has given us a great help. And in fact, a number of these questions will be addressed in the course of this letter from Paul to the Galatian churches. So if you and I are really going to guard the gospel, to be saved by it and to save others by it, then we are going to need to give careful attention to the argument of such portions of Scripture as we have in front of us. Because false teaching, remember, false teaching often comes couched in Bible terminology, right? We've already seen that. Paul said there are people coming to you purporting to preach the Gospel. But he's saying that's really another gospel. It's not my gospel. In fact, 
It's not the gospel at all because there is no other gospel. It is a distortion of the gospel. False teaching often comes couched in the terminology of the Bible and often comes through emphasizing one aspect of Bible truth in such a way as to contradict another. And of course, this is uh, nothing new. God's people have been striving to guard the gospel for a long, long time. This letter is written to a, a group of churches in an ancient Roman province of Galatia for just such a purpose. In Galatia, there were a number of churches um, that were probably established by Paul on his first missionary journey. And he had preached the gospel there to those people and they had believed his message. But false teachers had come in claiming additional teaching about the gospel using the same terminology. But in fact, their message was a distortion that undermined salvation by grace alone in Christ Jesus alone by faith alone. Paul writes this letter then to confront their teaching and to confront it in no uncertain terms for he says that these false teachers must be accursed, that they should be anathema, that they should fall in the judgment of God for their false teaching. And this is just such a helpful passage of Scripture and a helpful corrective for those of us who are oriented to just want to always be nice. And to to such a degree we are bent that way that we are tempted to compromise the Gospel out of a desire to be seen to be Um, gracious. This letter stands as a corrective to that, to remind us that there are some things worth fighting for. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ is one such thing. Last week, we began to look at Paul's testimony, kind of where he starts talking about his personal history. Remember that? And it goes on for a couple of chapters, and I took the entire chapter and a half or whatever it was and lumped it into one sermon. And and that was good, but I want to go back and visit just one piece of that because I think it sets the groundwork for other things that will come later and that I hope will become more clear later as we work our way through the letter. We are in the part of his... um, telling of his own story that uh, recounts an earlier confrontation that he had had with these same kinds of false teachers. And we read about it in chapter 2. Let's let's begin in verse 1 here. I really want to focus on verses uh, 3 to 5, but let's let's begin with verse 1. Then after 14 years, Paul says, probably 14 years since his conversion. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation 
and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And here's the, here's the passage to take note of here. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that we were, that I was eager to do. Now, Luke, in his account of Paul's life, you know, Luke wrote the gospel, uh, the book of Acts and Luke, in his account of Paul's life, records four different times when Paul made trips to to Jerusalem. The first time, Luke records in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, where uh, Paul goes down apparently two or three years after his conversion and meets uh, with Peter uh, for a bit. Then the second trip to Jerusalem is recorded in Acts chapter 11, and Paul, uh, Luke writes that there was a prophecy uh, that came up to Antioch that there was going to be a famine down around Jerusalem. And so the church in Antioch determined to send Paul and Barnabas to take a financial relief uh, package down uh, to the people down there, a gift. Um, the third visit to Jerusalem is recorded in Acts 15, which is the passage that we read about uh, a little earlier. And that was um, that famous gathering of apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem. And uh, and they addressed the topic that's similar to what's going on here, the, uh, the topic of the circumcision of Gentile people and the necessity for that. And then finally, Paul made a journey down to Jerusalem uh, in, in Acts chapter 21, recorded by Luke. This was his last Uh, visit there where he was arrested and sent to Rome. So Luke records four um, uh, visits to Jerusalem. Now, there is an older view of this passage. This is our text here uh, in Galatians chapter 2. There is an older view that says that this passage is probably Paul's own recounting of the visit in Acts 15, that is the one that we read earlier. And um, 
there are, of course, a number of similarities between what Paul's writing about here and what happened in Acts chapter 15. The same people are present, more or less. Paul and Barnabas, are, are, they go down. Uh, there is a similar issue. It has to do with the circumcision of the Gentiles. And it brought about the same basic result, which is that Paul's message of grace apart from the law was uh, affirmed uh, by the, the leaders in the church. So there, you can see why people would assume that these two are talking about the same event. There do seem to be, however, problems with that view. Um, number one, that Galatians chapter 2 records Paul going and meeting with the pillars of the church in private, whereas Acts 15 seems to um, seems to imply an open uh, sort of gathering, a, a public gathering. Even the whole church at one point was involved in that gathering. Secondly, Galatians 2, Paul's record here, um, they were sent down to Jerusalem in response to a revelation, uh, a revelation from God, which seems actually to match Acts 11, where Luke says that a prophet named Agabus went up and prophesied about the um, the uh, famine down in Judea seems to match that better than it does Acts chapter 15. Thirdly, um, and, and by the way, it also fits what Paul says here when he records that they asked him to remember the poor. He says the very thing that I was eager to do. In fact, the very thing, according to Acts chapter 11, on that second trip that they had sent him to do, to minister to the poor in Judea. As I say, the third uh, thing about this that uh, makes uh, interpreters believe that maybe this is a different situation is that in Galatians here, we looked at this last week, in Galatians, Paul makes a theological point, a strong point about listing his limited encounters with the apostles in Jerusalem. Remember, his point was that my gospel is independent. I got it directly from the Lord. So he's making a theological point about that. So if Acts 2 is talking about, I mean, if Galatians 2, excuse me, getting my books confused, if Galatians 2 is talking about Acts 15 and the gathering there, then that means that Paul left out of his account his visit that's recorded in Acts chapter 11, which apparently was well known enough for Luke to write about it which would seem to sort of undermine his, his point. People could say, well, yeah, but you had another visit there, right? So you're not so independent. And then finally, if the events of Acts chapter 15, that whole discussion about circumcision, if that had already taken place before Paul wrote the book of Galatians, then it seems strange that he didn't refer to it as that directly addressed the very topic that he is writing about. All of that to say this, that most modern conservative scholars believe that Galatians chapter 2, what Paul is recording here, is the events that took place that Luke records in Acts chapter 11, Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. And so Paul, in Acts, in Galatians 2, Paul is describing events then that took place before the Jerusalem Council that met to discuss a similar issue. Now, in verse 3 of our text, this is where I really want to focus, verses 3 to 5, all right? So let's look at the Scripture together. 
And here you see that apparently Paul um, and Barnabas took along with them on this trip another person to accompany them down to visit the Judean churches, and his name was Titus. Yeah, Titus, uh, as you know from just our reading, was a Gentile, non-Jew. He was a convert to Christianity. And uh, Paul had uh, would would write him a letter. Yeah, we have it in our scripture. Apparently, he was like a son to Paul, and he became an important coworker of Paul. Eventually, acting as his sort of personal representative to the churches on the island of Crete. Now, the issue with regards to Titus was the necessity of circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law as as a means of justification before God. Paul is relating what happens with Titus in Jerusalem because it speaks to the state of affairs that was taking place all across the churches in Galatia. The issue is, is circumcision and the keeping of the law necessary as a means of justification before God? And that that question, who is vindicated before God? Who is accepted before God? That is a question of massive importance. Who is justified in the eyes of God? The judge of all the earth. The God who has the power of life and death. The God who has the power of heaven and hell. Who will stand before Him and be vindicated, be justified, be approved? Who is declared righteous in God's sight? That's a huge question of, that ought to be of, of, of weighty significance on, on every mind of every person here. Are you, are you righteous in the sight of God? Are you justified before God? Or are you condemned? What do I have to do to be justified in the sight of God? That's one of the most important questions that anybody could ever ask. That is the, that is, that is the most important question in many ways. What must I do to be justified before God? And, and everyone involved in this um, debate, everyone agreed that the answer had something to do with Jesus. Okay? They're all talking about Jesus. They're all talking about Jesus as the Messiah. And so that's where you get confused, right? Because someone says Jesus is the only way. Does that mean he's preaching a true gospel? Well, in this case, it didn't. In this case, they needed further clarification to guard the integrity of the gospel message, and that's why Paul writes this letter. These false teachers taught that the people also needed to be circumcised as a means of justification before God. Now, in the Old Testament, as as most of you know, um, circumcision was a non-negotiable mark 
of being a part of Israel, the people of God. And even if you were a Gentile male who wanted to come uh, and be a part of the people of God, worship the Lord, you should, you must be circumcised. And the argument of these false teachers seems to be that faith in Christ is not enough for these Galatian Gentile believers in Jesus. It's a good start, but they now they need to go on and be circumcised if they would truly be God's people. And in verse 4, as Paul recounts this debate that he had with regard to Titus, he says about these people who took that position, he calls them something. He calls them, in verse 4, false brothers. Right? You see that? In other words, these are people who appeared to be followers of Jesus. They used a lot of the same terminology. They appeared to be Christians. But in fact, they were false brothers. And their their true identity was not manifest by the terminology that they used, but by their theology, the way that they understood those terms. Their false character was seen by their theology. And that's just a reminder that, friends, listen, a person can seem like the nicest Christian in the way that they act. And if they consistently deny a fundamental truth of the Christian faith, they are not Christians. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian is in fact to be recognized by us as a Christian. And one of the distinctions that we're going to have to make, or one of the the things that we're going to have to consider in making that distinction is that person's theology and what they say about the terms that they use that we share in common together. These people, he says, were, quote, secretly brought in people. They, quote, slipped into the church. His implication is that they're not really a part of the church. They're not really with us. They're not really of us. And in the end of verse 4, back again to the text, in the end of verse 4, Paul states that their purpose was, quote, to spy out our, what? Our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Now, this is the first use of these incredibly important words in the book of Galatians, the words freedom and slavery. These terms, as well as um, what I think are several parallel terms or terms being used in the same orbit as these two terms, freedom and slavery, these terms and the terms in the the orbit of, of that meaning are used like 50 times between the middle end of chapter 3 and into the beginning of chapter 5. So it's a huge 
huge issue um, theologically that Paul is trying to communicate by the use of these terms. And I just want to give you a sort of introduction. In one sense, the words for bondage have to do with being a slave, with being under sin, with being captive to the law, with being obligated to keep the whole law. These are all the kinds of language that Paul uses in this orbit of of term terminology. And then when he speaks of freedom, he speaks of being God's sons, of being not slaves, but sons and heirs according to the promise. In fact, the owners of everything. So you have on the one hand, slavery, and on the other hand, you have sons who are inheritors of all that belongs to the Father. There is also a historical sense in his use of these terms as the passages begin to unfold, such that bondage can actually refer to a child, and a child in terms of the history of God's dealings with people. And the way Paul says it, the equation here is, is in chapter 4, verse 1, when he says that a, an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a, a, from a slave. And this he equates with the present Jerusalem. Those who are, quote, born according to the flesh. But on the other hand, there is the free man. The free man is like the grown-up son come into his own now. Not a little child anymore. He's been set free from the elemental principles. He's no longer under a guardian. This, Paul says, is the Jerusalem from above. Those born according to the Spirit. Well, these false teachers want for the adult heir to go back in time, as it were, back into the age of childhood, into the slavery of youth, to regress in salvation history, and to go back under the law. But the most foundational issue of the gospel is whether Christ is sufficient. That's it whether Christ is sufficient to save you. Whether Christ is sufficient to make you truly and fully and completely a part of the people of God. And the false teacher said, no. You must also be circumcised. Titus must be circumcised if he would be a full part of the people of God. Well, the gospel itself was at stake, and so and so Paul took a stand. In verse 5, we read that to them we did not yield in submission. There's already the beginnings of that bondage language, isn't it? We did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Friends, the gospel is this. If you have Christ, you have it all. If you have Christ, you are saved. 
If you have Christ, you have everything. Paul says it in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is just a beautiful, succinct statement of the gospel. You know, we often talk about 1 Corinthians 15 as a succinct statement of the gospel. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Well, here's another one. Jesus Christ has become to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the the Lord. Jesus Christ is the gospel. His message was that Christ alone is sufficient to save. So, is circumcision necessarily... Is circumcision the necessary means of being justified before God? And Paul's adamant answer is no. But then he goes on, and uh, or we could go on, I should say, and, and raise a further question. Is circumcision necessary for Gentiles at all? Okay, the... the uh, Are you with me now? This is the question to start with. Is circumcision the means for to be justified before God? And the answer is an emphatic no. That's a perversion of the gospel itself. But if you go on and ask a further question, is is circumcision necessary for the Gentiles at all? Or to say it another way, is circumcision a matter of Christian obedience Well, we know this. We know that the gospel, the gospel of faith alone, does not exclude evangelical obedience. That's a sort of of a term that that we use sometimes to talk about uh, obedience that flows from faith in Christ. We know this, as I said, that the gospel of faith alone does not exclude evangelical obedience. The Bible does talk about a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments, right? So there is a Christian obedience that flows from a heart of faith, a regenerated soul that is not inconsistent with the gospel of justification by faith alone. So then back to this, this question, is, just, is circumcision, or for that matter, other parts of the law of Moses, are these matters of obedience to God's eternal moral standard that should characterize New Testament believers? Well, sometime later, after he wrote this, if, if our understanding of the chronology is right here, sometime later the church met to discuss that question in Acts chapter 15, which is why we went to that passage a little bit earlier. That question was still uh, unresolved. And of course, there were still elements of um, gospel perversion at the heart of it as well. So there's kind of two, there's threads of two things going on in the questions that came before that council. There is a subtext of whether circumcision is uh, is part of the essence of being justified before God, but then there is another question of whether it is 
um, to be observed by those who are uh, believers, Gentile believers. And uh, so those things are still, as I say, being discussed. And after, in, in that council, we read it earlier, in the council, after the uh, testimony from uh, various persons about God's new work in the world, that is, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon uncircumcised Gentiles, and after the testimony from Scripture that was brought out about God's bringing Gentiles into the end-time temple that he was going to make. After this, that council gave their judgment that not only was circumcision and law-keeping not the basis of salvation, but it was not necessary as a matter of Christian obedience on the part at least, of Gentile people. Now, in that, uh, in that, uh, uh, in that council, uh, they also gave one caveat to that conclusion. And uh, the caveat was this, that they requested that the churches observe certain visible aspects of the Mosaic law out of concern for the Jews who were all around them. And I, I don't have really time to go back into Acts 15 this morning, um, but I want to I sort of tie it in here, tie it together. We know that at least some of the things that the Jerusalem Council um, gave as instructions to Gentile believers were not moral absolutes. Um, because one of them was refraining from food that was not prepared according to Mosaic law, right? Things strangled, um, blood might have been a reference to that as well, abstaining from blood. And another of the uh, prohibitions that they made was to refrain from food offered to idols. Now again, I ask you, are those absolute standards of Christian obedience for God's people for all time. Well, we have the Apostle Paul's testimony in various places, including Romans chapter 14, when he talks about this very issue of meat that uh, was probably not prepared according to the Mosaic law. And some of the people were saying, we shouldn't eat meat. And his answer was, you remember this? He said, no, you are free to eat the meat. But, remember this, he said, if it causes your weaker brother, in that context, almost surely a reference to Jewish people, if it causes those people to stumble, then what should you do about the meat? Refrain from it. Don't eat it out of love for your brothers. And then in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and even into 10, he addresses the topic of food that was offered to idols, specifically. And remember what he told them. He said to the Corinthian church, you are at liberty to eat that food. If you're buying it in the market and you're bringing it home, you're eating it in private, 
then eat it, give thanks to God, rejoice for His provision. But, he said, now, for the sake of the mission of the gospel, if someone says to you, hey, this food was offered to idols, when you're getting ready to sit down uh, or you're you're in a discussion with them, then he says, for for the sake of that person's conscience, is not yet fully trained, he said, for that for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel with that person, do not eat the meat. Right? So, this, I think, helps explain why Paul was willing to have Timothy circumcised, which we read about in Acts chapter 16 earlier. Right after this Jerusalem council that dealt with the whole issue of circumcision and said that it's not, they did, said it's not necessary these Gentile believers, he goes and he has Timothy circumcised, which we're all saying, now why did he do that? And then refuse, I mean, take a stand about Titus being circumcised in Galatians chapter 2. Is Paul being inconsistent? What is going on with him? And I think these things help explain it, that out of love for the Jews and out of a desire for the furtherance of the gospel mission, Paul was willing to become a Jew to the Jews and to have Timothy do the same. That is, to be circumcised, even though it was not religiously necessary. It was not a matter for Timothy of Christian obedience. And yet, Paul saw the wisdom in the, for the sake of the gospel in having him circumcised. But now, in contrast to that, all right, let's come back to the text now. In contrast to that, when circumcision was being made the basis of justification before God, when that was the issue surrounding that circumcision, then Paul adamantly stood against it and refused to let Titus be circumcised as a matter of principle. So we should compromise all we can for the sake of love and for the sake of the gospel. I'm not talking about compromising what God has clearly said, but compromising in ways uh, where we have a liberty We should compromise all we can for the sake of love for brothers and for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel, but don't compromise the gospel. This is a vital principle that anything you add to Christ as the instrumental cause of justification before God, anything that you add perverts the gospel because Christ is sufficient. Amen? Christ is sufficient for us. What a blessing that is to the ears of sinners. Christ is sufficient. His obedience was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled all the law on the behalf of us. He died in the place of sinners 
and bore our sins upon His own shoulders, there is no hope that we have to be justified in the sight of God outside of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, this is such an encouragement because you look within, and, it, it, and this is, this is a, a danger, I think, that sometimes as, even as Christian people, we start to look inward at our own responses to the gospel more than we look outward at the objective perfection of Jesus Christ. And so we either become puffed up and comparing ourselves with others, consider ourselves to be um, impressive to God in some measure, uh, more uh, more uh, meritorious. We would never use the language, but just feel like God must well be pleased with us because we have done so well. Either on the one hand, we tend to fall into a legalistic understanding of justification before God or and, and become puffed up, or on the other hand, we become greatly discouraged because we look inward, we look at our own activity and our own behavior, and we see that our evangelical obedience is by no means as consistent as it ought to be. And we grieve, and we begin to worry, and to wonder whether we are acceptable to God. Perhaps to be fearful whether we are are going to be saved in the judgment of God. And I and I tell you, there. This is where you know when you when you speak the gospel, you have to. You have to speak everything that God speaks. And we'll come back to this in the weeks to come, but our, our um, holiness and our works and our life bear witness to the reality of our faith and, and ought to be examined. But I want us... I want us to never lose sight of this, that in all of our internal examination, that we not lose this extrinsic view, this view that looks beyond ourselves to a righteousness that is outside of us, that is given to us by the free grace of God. And that is Jesus Christ Himself, who is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. He that has the Son has... Life and he that has not the Son does not have life. Jeremiah condemned the people of his day whose trust was in the temple, who thought, as long as the temple stands, we're saved. We're saved. Jesus condemned the Jewish people of his day who said that we have Abraham as our father, we were born into the right family. Few people today, I think, that in our circles uh, are putting their trust for their salvation, their ultimate hope for salvation in their circumcision. But perhaps they are looking to the fact that they prayed a prayer and that they prayed it well or that they were baptized or that they are a member of such and such a church 
or that they were born into a Christian family or that they try to live a good life or any number of things that we add to Christ alone as our ultimate hope for justification before God. In another letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he warned against similar false teachers that were coming in there. And he contrasted their teaching with the true gospel and the true people of God. And it's just such a beautiful passage. Philippians chapter two, uh, 3, beginning in verse 2. Notice the text. He says, now look out for the dogs. You know who he's talking about? The false teachers. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we, he says, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He goes on to say, if anyone, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, he says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But, look at this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss. I I, can, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now look at that last verse. This is just a beautiful uh, depiction of the Gospel right here. There is only one righteousness that saves. It is God's own righteousness, Christ's own righteousness that is given to you as a gift. It is the righteousness from God. And that depends on faith. Why does it depend on faith? Because faith itself is not doing anything. It's not performing acts that merit anything in the sight of God. Faith is a leaning of your soul upon the Savior, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith saves because Christ saves. Faith is nothing but looking away from yourself to the one who took your place the one who was righteous before God and asking that God in His mercy would bring you into union, into into a, a relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you and that I will have faith in Christ. And having faith in Christ, we will be found complete in Him. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a time of reflection. Our Heavenly Father,
I would ask that you would continue to bring this message home to every hearer today. I pray that if there is a person here who is outside of Jesus Christ, who is not looking in faith to Christ, today you'd give them faith. I pray that today you would give them the incredible gift of sight to see the glory of Jesus and to run to your Son. I pray it for his sake. And I pray it in his name. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, let's continue to reflect on the word that we have heard today. You spend some time speaking to the Lord about it. Well, Lord, I thank you for hearing the prayers of those who come to you humbly. Lord, some may have asked you that you would show them what's true. I ask you too, you would hear and answer it. Some have confessed their faith again in Christ, that their only hope is in him. And I ask that you would affirm that faith in them and cause them to see once again the absolute certainty of the one in whom they've put their faith. I pray that you would do this work in us for the sake of his name. Amen.